This is a Wool Observatory podcast. Thank you for joining this episode of Star Stuff. Today we have an incredible guest that personally I have been very excited for, Dr. Donald Johansson. Um, so thanks for joining us, Dr. Johansson. Oh, my pleasure. For more than four decades, Dr. Donald Johansson has conducted field and um, laboratory research in paleoanthropology, which is the study of fossil hominids. He's most known for discovering the 3.2 million-year-old hominid skeleton popularly known as Lucy, and he's carried out field research in Ethiopia, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Jordan, and Tanzania. In 1976, Dr. Johansson was appointed curator of physical anthropology at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. In 1981, he founded the Institute of Human Origins, which is now affiliated with the Arizona State University. I feel uh, honored to have been asked to participate on this panel. We also have Kevin Schindler here, our historian, and John Compton, who uh, works up here at Lowell with us and has a background in geology. So we thought that might be a fun tie-in to how geology and astronomy and your field all connect. Yeah. Hey, pals. Um, hello, podcast pals. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. The Lucy fossil was one of my my loves. I have wanted to be an archaeologist, and I just remember what that was an extraordinary exhibit. I bet that moment discovering Lucy was quite impactful. Well, it certainly was. I mean, this is, uh, we're coming up, I, I hate to say, on nearly 50 years of discovery in 2024 uh, since the discovery. Uh, but it was very early in my days. I had been working in southern Ethiopia with my professor, Professor Clark Howell, who was at the University of Chicago. And uh, during that period of time, I was introduced to fieldwork in Africa, which had been a boyhood, boyhood dream to go to Africa. And um, at that time, I met uh, some geologists who were working in uh, the Afar region. They invited me up. Uh, to look, and I realized the first time I was there in 1972 that these were extraordinarily fossil-rich geological strata uh, that on the basis of the pigs and elephants that we were finding, um, I knew that it was over three million years old. So in 1974, when uh, Lucy came into my life, uh, I uh, realized almost immediately that this is going to be something fairly important. I didn't know exactly who she was, how she fit in on the human family tree, what species she was. But because of her completeness, uh, we were going to get a very good idea of uh, her anatomy and to determine whether or not she was uh, a new species or already identified species of human ancestor. And in ensuing years, we, we've recovered more than 400 specimens of her species from a the site of Hadar, where she was found. And there's no question now that she's universally accepted as a new species, that tongue twister, Australopithecus afarensis, <laughs> wow. afarensis, afar named after the afar region and the people who live there. It's amazing. One of the reasons we're talking to you today is because we're preparing for our third annual iHeart Pluto Festival here in Flagstaff, and that's an annual event that celebrates the discovery of Pluto here at Lowell Observatory in 1930, and it's really turned into a community event. It goes well beyond Lowell, but every year we we put on a kind of a keynote part of this, and this year is this panel discussion that um, you'll be participating in um, along with uh, Clyde Tumba's son, El Tumba, uh, Lucy, or uh, Kathy Olkin, who I know you know, um, she's on the Lucy mission, which we're going to talk about, um, and and Alan Stern, who's the, in charge of the New Horizons mission. So it's it's really going to be fun to celebrate Pluto and to bring you back to some of your early root field roots, but also get you back tied into astronomy a little bit. 
Well, that, that's uh, it's so appropriate, and I'm thrilled to have been invited. And I know Kathy and her husband, and I know Al. And um, it'll be an opportunity to talk about the rewards, I guess, of exploration and discovery. But uh, as a, a young kid growing up in Connecticut, I uh, was very interested in astronomy and uh, did had my own little four-inch reflecting telescope that I would go out and uh, look at the moon and Jupiter and Saturn and various things. And it was also very appropriate uh, to be involved with this because in high school, my high school, Hartford Public High School, uh, had a 10-inch Clark refracting mm, telescope. That's a nice telescope. And, and I know that you have a Clark instrument at Lowell, uh, so there's a real tie in there. And uh, I was uh, very involved and in president of the high school astronomy club. And it was a wonderful old observatory where you went up and with a heavy chain, you opened up the slit and then you physically uh, with a lever pushed the dome around to that little part of the dark sky that you wanted to see that evening and sat around with your slide rule and calculated right ascension and declination and set the dials on the instrument. And there it was. It sounds like you were set to become an astronomer. Did you ever consider going into that field? Well, no, I didn't. Uh, I, I knew it would be a lifelong interest for me, but uh, I was much more captivated by trying to understand uh, the origins of humankind. And uh, that was particularly because I had read a book. I had a wonderful mentor who was an anthropologist, and uh, he was a cultural anthropologist, but he had a wonderful library, and he gave me access to that library. And uh, one of the books uh, that uh, I read when I was around 13 years old was called Man's Place in Nature, written by Thomas Henry Huxley, who was, of course, a, a very close colleague and friend of Charles Darwin. And in this book, uh, Huxley draws uh, attention to the fact that because of the similarities between the African apes and modern humans in terms of their anatomy and so on, uh, that we must have shared a common ancestor. And uh, to me, that was uh, revelatory. Uh, I thought, wow, how neat is this that we have shared a common ancestor uh, with the African apes. And uh, I decided that this was a problem that I wanted to learn more about. And as I read about it uh, and was given more things to read about it, I saw that there were really very few discoveries at that point in the, uh, when I was in 1956. Uh, and I was hoping that uh, I would have an opportunity to study anthropology in this case, paleoanthropology, and get to Africa. So uh, I really set my sights on that at a very young age. I remember three years after that when Lewis and late Lewis and Mary Leakey announced their Nutcracker Man discovery at Old Divide Gorge, uh, places that were sounded very exotic to me, very interesting. Africa was, I knew quite a bit about Africa because my mentor worked there. And um, I had lots of interests in the natural world uh, and uh, butterflies and gophers and rabbits <laughs> and all those things that I collected and observed, bird watching and so on. And uh, Africa seemed to have it all. And I, I set my sights on that. And you were at 13 when you read that uh, book that piqued your original interest in paleoanthropology? Yes, that's right. It, it, Huxley was, uh, he also, in, in addition to being a great scientist, uh, he was very interested in conveying Darwin's, as uh, David Dennett, I think Dennett calls it, uh, Darwin's dangerous idea <laughs> that uh, not only did uh, the family dog evolve, but my gosh, even uh, our partners evolved and humans evolved. And uh, Huxley uh, presented a series of lectures to the sort of, quote, common, uncommon man and uh, translated a lot of these into these into this book, Our Place in Nature. 
And uh, so it was, it was a wonderful introductory book. It wasn't some big, heavy tome written in German. Uh, it, was a, it was a book that had made it a, a tremendous impact uh, after, you know, a hundred years uh, on this little kid growing up in Connecticut and, and following in the footsteps of that penultimate paragraph that said, someday someone, some unborn paleontologist will find an ape more human-like or mm -hmm. a human more ape-like. And uh, that's what I was set on doing and uh, had the great fortune of finding Lucy. That's amazing to picture someone at, at 13 reading uh, a book that, you know, inspired your entire career. But also, was there any point before that that really piqued your interest in science? Or was it just as a kid, it was just the love of nature and animals? And Well, what really piqued my interest in science uh, was a uh, incredible uh, elementary school. We call them the grammar schools in those days. Uh, appropriately, I went to Noah Webster Grammar School. Um, there was a science teacher um, who was uh, incredibly enthusiastic about science. And um, it, it just resonated with me, the, the world of science, uh, doing simple experiments uh, uh, in the uh, eighth grade, you know, where you have electrolysis and you, you produce oxygen and hydrogen out of, out of water. Uh, how do you get two gases together to make a liquid? Um, how do you get two gases out of a liquid? Um, and he often engaged me in uh, questions, or I engaged him in questions, and uh, more and more, he would call on me in class to uh, follow up on something that he was doing or a volunteer to do something. So I think the, the, the idea of, of trying to understand the, the world of science and how that's our, really our window into understanding the whole universe we live in uh, was terribly important. And then in high school, we had a geologist. Uh, he was a, like a trained geologist who taught half a semester in geology and half a semester in astronomy. Uh, so as is so often the case, it's these inspiring books, but also uh, inspiring teachers. And I'll never forget uh, the science teacher I had in eighth grade. It's amazing how impactful some of those teachers can be at such a young age. Where this is when people's minds are open. Yeah, so it, it is cool because, you know, I, I got into astronomy through geology, but it seems like you had a lot of interests that were kind of uh, going around, you know, anthropology, paleoanthropology and um, astronomy mixed together. So it must have been really uh, neat to hear um, that like the space mission would be named after your most famous find and then the first body would be this this asteroid named in your honor um would it how did you feel when you got that news well i i was absolutely overwhelmed <laughs> I, I remember the very first uh, email uh, i received and uh, it's it sort of said just maybe one of the strangest emails you've ever ever received and um <laughs> went on to, to say that, uh, like uh, Lucy, um, helped us understand our own origins. They wanted to name a mission uh, going into uh, to the Jupiter's, uh, at, you know, um, the asteroids, uh, the Trojan asteroids that surround Jupiter, uh, to see if they could use that, uh, identify and, and look at evidence on those asteroids to help us understand the origins of our solar system. And uh, uh, it said, you know, what, what did I think this was a good idea? I thought it was a great idea. <laughs> and uh, was uh, just so thrilled that my interest, uh, as you know, in anthropology and astronomy, discovery, uh, evolution of all kinds, um, would uh, would be celebrated by this uh, remarkable uh, spacecraft. Hal Levison is uh, the senior researcher 
And uh, of course, we're going to have at this wonderful gathering uh, this month, uh, we're going to have Kathy with us, and uh, she's the co-principal investigator. Uh, so I'm thrilled. And of course, once I learned that they named an asteroid after me and that that asteroid will be the first one that they visit, uh, because they're going to calibrate the instruments on board to uh, see if they're working properly for the Trojan asteroids, uh, I certainly look at the heavens in a very different way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really cool. I mean, talk about like taking back the timeline or going even further back in time to study what became all of all of this and all of us. It's, it's really cool. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm very excited to be able to look through the telescope at Lowell Observatory uh, when I come. And uh, yeah, astronomy is just, I mean, it's, it's one of those great things you can learn so much about just from your backyard. There's something beautiful about the fact that um, this Lucy mission um, its first kind of discovery will be to, or, you know, its first pass by will be to see this asteroid named in your honor, which is, there's, there's a great. And also, also uh, some of the camera lenses on the uh, spacecraft uh, are made of diamond. Yeah. So uh, as Lucy was named after Lucy in the sky with diamonds from the Beatles, we will now have Lucy back in the sky with diamonds. That's amazing. Don, since, yeah. you, since you mentioned that, you'll have to tell the story about how the name came to be. Oh, yes. Well, we, we uh, were celebrating, obviously, that discovery. This was an extraordinary discovery. And uh, it was a, a Sunday. I was going to remain in camp. Uh, for some paperwork and so on, a graduate student of mine, Tom Gray, uh, who was in charge of uh, mapping our localities where fossils were found. We had one locality from the year before uh, where we had collected fossils and left a stone cairn, a stone pile of stones to mark the spot, but we never got it on our map uh, in 1973. So in 74, I went out with him to that spot there were very few fossils there, uh, but uh, fortunately, on the way back to my Land Rover, I looked over my shoulder and spotted a little piece of arm bone, and that led to this skeleton uh, known as as Lucy. We we you know people say how did you know her name was Lucy? Well, we didn't. Uh, we were <laughs> celebrating in camp that night, and uh, another member of the expedition, Pam Alderman. Uh, she said, you really think this is a female, do you? And I said, yeah, I do, because of, of the small size. I mean, if you look at the length of her thigh bone, it's only 12 inches long. Uh, put a ruler next to your thigh bone, and I'll, I'll guarantee that your femur is going to be a lot longer. Uh, we knew it was an adult because her adult teeth, her third molar was erupted. And um, I figured that the bones were very lightly built and so on. The teeth were not very large. The mandible was rather small. That it was a female. And she said, well, if you do, because we were listening to the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band <laughs> album on my tape recorder. And uh, she said, well, why don't you call her Lucy after Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds? And uh, that, that stuck and that got to be her name. It's amazing. I remember the exhibit. Um, I actually went four times. This was one of my favorite exhibits I've ever seen. So just great job, I'm sure, in your collaboration with that. Um, there was a- where did, where did you go? Houston, uh, the Houston oh, uh, exhibit. It was absolutely stunning. There was a room and they like had stars projected and they played the song and it was like, it was so moving. Uh, was, yeah, I, I was down there, uh, I think three times to see her. Oh, really? Uh, in Houston. I was I lectured for uh, two different groups down there, and then I was down there for a, uh, a dinner uh, with some of the Ethiopian dignitaries. So Amazing. Uh, wow. Yeah. And it was, it was wonderful to see her laid out like that. Yeah. Celebrated by so many people. Oh, my gosh. It was, I mean, at the time, we were all just, I feel like the whole city was celebrating. It was so cool. Um, definitely a defining moment for me. But um, speaking of um, Ethiopia, we've got um, a lot of different views of what 
you know, I'll use the term archaeology broadly since I know that, uh, you know, your field is a bit more specified than that. But um, this idea of exhibit um, expeditions, going on these expeditions um, in the field, doing this analysis, uh, these incredible destinations that you're traveling to, setting up camp. Can you explain what that's like? Um, I think I always looked through it when I was growing up, wanting to be an archaeologist through the lens of like the likes of Indiana Jones, which I know isn't too close to reality. But I was wondering if you could paint us a picture of what those adventures were like. Well, it, it certainly is uh, uh, resembles Indiana Jones. Amazing. Because, uh, you're really out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's no uh, Walgreens nearby. <laughs> uh, there's no hardware store. There's no place to get your car fixed if it breaks. And when it breaks down, they always do. So you really, it takes a lot of time in Addis Ababa where we uh, start our expeditions uh, to collect all of the necessary tents and field equipment and uh, getting cars fixed and buying food and so on and so forth. And it's, uh, it, it's very desolate. I mean, it takes maybe once every other week, we'd send a car out for a day and a half drive or so to pick up fresh vegetables from the highlands. But um, it, it was wonderful being isolated out in the middle of nowhere. And the only <laughs> thing that you did was your work and the work that you loved with the people you liked, uh, answering and asking questions that were evolving and changing from day to day. Um, there were certainly uh, dangers lurking. There were uh, hungry wild lions that came and terrorized our camp one night. Oh my gosh. Uh, What happened? uh, Well, we had these mangy lions that were roaring and uh, one I was sitting in the dining tent uh, talking with a colleague and this lion was walking right up to us uh, in the dining tent. So I grabbed a rock and threw it at him and it disappeared but they were around all night. You could hear them roaring. So we had to set up people to sit on tops of Land Rovers with very bright lights uh, to scan the landscape, uh, to keep them away. Uh, and uh, some people slept inside of their cars. I, I slept in my tent, got up in the morning and found a big lion paw print. In front oh, of my, my God. It sounds like the ghost in the darkness. Yeah, so it, uh, yeah, but Mr. Patterson's book, um, it, it it it's it's wonderful. You you have other dangers, of course, like uh, snakes, and it's interesting about snakes. You don't see snakes very often, really. But I uh, now they they uh, they don't like to be around people. Mm-hmm. The only ones that do really are cobras, because they're very very bright and they can hang around the kitchen and and eat the mice when people go to bed and uh, where they hide during the day, we don't know. But if, if you got a, a real herpetologist, someone who could go out there and look for them, I bet they'd find a lot more snakes than you know are there. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's more know, comforting or not. <laughs> check your, your tent every night for scorpions and um, take anti-malarial medicine um, to prevent you from getting malaria. Oh man. Was that a real um, risk out there? Oh yeah, very high risk. We we all. Uh, I had malaria in southern Ethiopia <gasps> way back in 1970. Oh my gosh! But I never caught it up in the Afar region. And um, you know, if you get sick, you get sick, and you have to sort <sighs> of work your way through it, or make the arduous uh, day long trip on what were very at, at that time in the Afar. There really weren't any paved roads. So um, it would have been a long, difficult drive. If you had appendicitis, you might not make it. But um, it, it's glorious to be out there uh, and away from what we call civilization. Uh, when you first go, you begin to miss things. And you think about, well, I've got going to read the next Time magazine that somebody brings into camp. And after a while, you're just <laughs> not interested in even listening to the BBC news or something. You're just, you're, you go to bed with the sun, you get up with the sun, uh, you step out of your tent at night and see this glorious sky. 
Uh, you can see Andromeda with your naked eye. Oh my gosh. Uh, it, and it, listen to the hippos grunting in the river. Um, and it's just, it's just the most wonderful time to be doing all day long something that you love so much. It sounds like an absolute dream. That's incredible. And Kevin said there was even, um, was there a helicopter equipment failure, something here? Well, that yes, that was 1975 uh, in December. And uh, we had uh, made a very major discovery. I didn't make that discovery. A, a medical doctor on the team, Michael Bush, found the first uh, bones at that locality, which came to be known as the first family locality, because there are about uh, 200 and some fragments of bones that represent somewhere around 15 to 17 different individuals that died at the same time, all belonging to Lucy's species, infants, adults, males and females, and so on. And a uh, National Geographic photographer uh, was uh, with us that year. And he thought it'd be a great idea to get a uh, aerial photograph of the excavation, which was very impressive. And we hired a helicopter in Addis Ababa uh, and flew up to the site and stopped in a little town where, and I mean little, it was really little at that point, and uh, stayed overnight. And in the morning when we tried to take off, we were about 150 feet in the air and the uh, engine stopped and uh, crashed uh, on the road in the middle of the village. Um, and uh, fortunately, none of us were injured. Uh, we were, I was most worried because of my shirt was soaked in gasoline from one of the tanks that broke. So I certainly didn't want to emulate myself. Um, and we were, we were stuck up there. You know, we, we, uh, we wanted to get back to Addis Ababa, and they had sent two uh, single-engine planes to come up to get us, and both had engine trouble. So we had to go back by road, which uh, which was interesting, particularly because it was Christmas Eve. But uh, it was um, it was one of those fabulous experiences that uh, we're happy to be able to look back on and talk about. Right. You're really capturing, you know, what it is to do exploration, especially field work. Um, there's, it's romantic. Um, it can be dangerous. Um, not just, you know, things that we think about like equipment breaking or, you know, snakes in the tent or scorpions and such, but a little bit on a larger scale. This isn't like doing exploration in the United States where you drive down the road. This is going to a place where there's often political turmoil. Um, and maybe you even have armed guards standing nearby. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, our area is uh, where Lucy was found. It, it, we're north of a river called the Awash River. And that Awash River is, uh, has been historically the north-south boundary between two tribal groups, the Afar and the Isa. And they've been at war for untold number of years. Uh, and, uh, occasionally we would, they would, they would fire their machine guns over our camp just to let us know who we, they were there. I don't think they were going, we were in any danger of being killed by them, but, uh, we had armed guards. The Afar came, they all had AK-47s, Kalashnikovs, uh, and would guard our camp. Uh, so it was very important to have guards there because of things like, uh, marauding lions uh, or other uh, big cats. Uh, it was rumored there was a leopard nearby, although we never saw leopards. They're very secretive. And um, But uh, in case of danger, of course, they were there to look after us. And what was fascinating about having these uh, armed guards there, uh, I mean, they, they were really members of the expedition. They became friends of ours. These are off our tribesmen. Uh, unfortunately, some have passed away. Uh, but uh, for instance, just last year, one of the Afar who was with me when I found Lucy uh, passed away. But we've, you know, we're, we still have many friends in that village that provided that support for us. 
1990, when uh, after nine years of not being able to do any work because of the communist government in Ethiopia under Mengistu, um, we were uh, in, encouraged to come back. But the problem was that uh, the, there was a, uh, a liberation army coming from the northern part of Ethiopia, and uh, the government was afraid that uh, they might uh, be of danger to us. So we had to take uh, army guards with us, which didn't go over very well with the local people. Uh, but, you know, the year 1974, when Lucy was discovered, I arrived uh, with my French colleague, Maurice Taieb, from Paris into Addis Ababa just days after Haile Selassie, who had been emperor for so long, was deposed by a military takeover. And uh, the country was undergoing enormous amount of instability. And uh, people at the American embassy uh, didn't want to have anything to do with us. They said, you need to, you know, pack up and go home. It's too dangerous here. We don't know what's going to happen. And uh, I pooled the team and I said, who wants to go into the field? And uh, we all agreed upon it. And if we had turned around and gone home, who knows? We might never have found Lucy. So we went to the field and we had, there was a flight that came over our camp uh, once a week uh, to see how our Land Rovers were positioned. If they were positioned in a certain way, uh, they would uh, they would know that we were in trouble. If they were positioned in, uh, as they would normally be, they'd know that everything was fine. So, um, yeah, we take chances when we do this. Uh, in Yemen, when I was uh, there in, in the early mid-90s, uh, I was captured by uh, Bedouins. Excuse me. Uh, who tried to what? take our truck, and uh, that was that was uh, made your heart beat a little faster. Oh my gosh, that's in- insane! I can't even picture that. It definitely just sounds like an Indiana Jones movie. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm shocked at how similar that was. That's <laughs> <laughs> crazy. You know, you're roughing it out there in the field, and you've got all this other stuff kind of going on. Um, you know, and then you you stumble across this this arm bone in a bed. I I can't imagine you had much survey equipment out there with you. You know, if you're if you're trying to avoid all these things and um, roughing it in the field, did you uh, get have like a an early idea of how old this fossil was just based on like, the bed that it was in, or did you have some survey uh, equipment techniques out there with you? Yeah, that's a, that's that's a, a question I'm frequently asked, and uh, we used a biostratigraphy, uh, which means that we looked at the uh, animals that were found in the same stratum. Uh, for instance, if uh, we were out together in some geological deposits in the western part of the United States in Montana or Wyoming or whatever and we found a bone that was a dinosaur, we would know that that, di- that bone had to be older than uh, 66 million years because dinosaurs went extinct uh, around <laughs> that time. So that's an index fossil that tells us that we're in very old geological strata or stratum. And it's the same thing using elephants and pigs. Uh, there's a very rich record of elephant evolution and pig evolution over the last six million, seven million years in Eastern Africa, which has been calibrated using argon dating, dating volcanic sediments. And uh, the anatomical changes that these uh, fossil species underwent were fairly rapid. Uh, It usually was related uh, to, to diet um, they're herbivores, both pigs and uh, elephants. And uh, just look at a, an elephant molar, for example. Uh, if you look at a, a six million year old elephant molar, it doesn't have many enamel plates in it, like the contemporary African elephant. 
And over time, those number of plates increased in a regular way. Uh, their thickness changed uh, and the depth of them changed. So you can plot uh, the measurements one takes on elephant or pig teeth uh, on, a, on a chart and uh, correlate them with uh, argon dates. Hmm. So we knew from the elephants and the pigs particularly that these deposits were older than 3 million. And what was so vital about that was we only had a handful of fossils on the human family tree at that point. We had a mandible with a couple of teeth in it. We had a piece of an arm bone. We had a few isolated teeth, but nothing that told us about who these creatures were. So getting back, breaking that three million year time barrier really opened up a new vista for us on uh, early um, hominin uh, evolution. That's amazing. Yeah. So you had a pretty quick idea that this was something special. You know, when you yeah, we didn't know exactly. You know, at one point uh, we got an early date, very early date on a basalt uh, which was uh, which has been questioned uh, at about 3.4 million, but uh, that was that was an error. And the formation, the geological formation, which is called the Hadar formation, had a over the years we discovered a whole series of volcanic ash layers, and it's from one of the most poorly dated sequences. It's become one of the better dated sequences in the Great Rift Valley. So. Uh, We've been very fortunate in having these volcanic markers that allowed for uh, argon dating. That's amazing. Yeah. So, you know, you're as the more and more evidence kind of is coming forward that this is really, really old, um, very robust uh, sample. Um, skeleton uh you know how did how did peers in the in the field kind of take it well i i you know when the the first discoveries were made um my first discovery was of a fossil knee joint in 1973 we didn't know very much from a knee but we did know that that the person who that knee belonged to walked upright because it's just like the knee in your leg and my leg mm-hmm. uh but as more and more, as you alluded to, evidence was discovered and we could understand that this was a species quite different from any other species uh, of Australopithecus, of uh, what are sometimes called uh, ape men, hmm. somewhat erroneously, but anyway, <laughs> that this was a new species, that demanded taking a step backwards and looking at how it fit on a human family tree or where it it sit on the phylogeny of humans. And that's what uh, caused the most consternation, although there were two areas where there was tremendous controversy. One was, were they fully upright walking like modern humans and did they walk around like they do in cartoons with bent knees and bent hips? Well, (laughs) they didn't walk around with bent knees and bent hips, but it took almost a decade to convince people who thought that uh, they saw them as sort of Mm -hmm. semi-erect. And uh, the other area was when I proposed uh, at a symposium in Sweden in 1978 that afarensis, I introduced the species at that time, and I said, with this new species, we have to look at the position on the human family tree and I proposed at that time that this was the last common ancestor to the line or lineage uh, that led to our own genus, Homo, and to uh, a number of species of Australopithecus, like the Nutcracker Man from Olduvai that I mentioned earlier, uh, that all of those Australopithecines died out. They were very specialized uh, vegetarians that were outcompeted, and by a million years they were gone. But on the other hand, I suggested that the generalized nature of this species um, 
makes it a good candidate for an ancestor to homo. Our own genus, which is characterized by tools and larger brains, culture, and so on. And what is uh, so rewarding to me, having made this discovery, you know, I was 31 years old at that time. Wow. <laughs> as a young scholar, is to, to see how all of this is unfolded. You know, they always say, and you know, it just takes one ugly fact to destroy a theory or a hypothesis. And my hypothesis was that Homo arose somewhere between two and three million years ago, that these other Australopithecus species arose between two and three million years ago, and were directly related to Lucy's species afarensis. And uh, lo and behold, now that the record is being filled in, partly by our team at uh, the Institute of Human Origins down in Tempe at Arizona State University. Uh, we have Homo, earliest Homo, at about 2.8 million. And it, it, the front of the jaw has the anatomy of Lucy's species, uh, her genus, Australopithecus, and the back portion of her jaw, related to diet, of course, uh, looks like early Homo. And along the other lineage, there have been a number of discoveries that have supported this early hypothesis. And um, so uh, it, it's been very rewarding to see that uh, I didn't, you know, have to abandon everything. I'm sure that there are little tweaks that come along that will, will, will change some aspects of it. But I think the overall picture of the hypothesis I presented in 78 is, is holding up. I have to ask, like, how does it feel looking like in retrospect, you were very aware of, of Darwin and, and his discoveries at a very young age. You were like, you know, early teens. Um, and thinking about how much you've discovered in that, um, in just about evolution and in your field. I mean, it's got to be pretty incredible to have gone from reading about Darwin's discoveries to becoming an, kind of an evolution of them. Yeah, I mean, uh, as I look back, I mean, it, it, you know, it, it's like human evolution. If you look back, it looks like it's a straight line, <laughs> you know, from, from ape to human, like they have in these diagrams where you have, you know, an ape gets more and more erect, and then you've got this human as a, the pinnacle of evolution. We could debate that. But um, it, it was a series of events that happened uh, in my life that were extraordinary. Uh, I, at some points along the way, I made very conscious choices about what I did. Uh, at other times, it was serendipity. I mean, who knew I would be introduced to an anthropologist when I was nine years old and have a, a, a lifelong relationship with someone who led me into the world of academics. Um, and when, I'm, uh, when I speak to audiences, especially uh, younger audiences, uh, what I think is, is really so important, and I, I think this will come up in our, I hope this comes up in our exploration and discovery event uh, mm -hmm. later this month, is that... Uh, Having a, a passionate interest in something doesn't always reward you. I mean, yeah. there are how many kids would like to be playing on a, a national baseball team, okay? Mm -hmm. But it gives you some, something to focus on. And um, in some cases, you're incredibly well rewarded, uh, as I was. Um, but you... You have to have, I think, first of all, you have to have a passion. Second of all, I think you've got to have a, a certain amount of drive and, and be a self-starter. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, when I was finishing my undergraduate work at the University of Illinois, I wanted to go to Africa. Well, there was nobody at the university who worked in Africa. Nobody worked in paleoanthropology. Hmm. And, uh, but I knew there was this professor at the University of Chicago through my readings, of course, that he was kind of the leading light in, in 
paleoanthropology. And uh, I also knew that he wasn't going to come and knock on my dorm door and say, hey, Don, would you like to come to Africa with me? <laughs> so I, I picked up the phone and I called University of Chicago. Wow. And I told him, I said, I've admired your work and I'm, um, I'd like to come and, and talk with you about paleoanthropology. And he just said, well, oh, how about next week? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and... Uh, that was that would never have happened had I, you know, waited around for for someone to call me. So mm-hmm. I, I look back on it, and I also look back on my career, um, in terms of the institute I built that uh, has uh, is at Arizona Arizona State University. We mm-hmm. in April will have our official opening. We're we're moving into thirty thousand square feet. We've got twenty scientists. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a major institute, the Institute of Human Origins, but, um, that I've also been incredibly fortunate to be working with so many creative, wonderful, giving, sharing colleagues Hmm. who shared this dream of trying to develop a better understanding of who we are, where we've come from and how we fit into the natural world. And just so I heard that right, you were 31 when you discovered Lucy? Yes. God. (laughs) Man, Um, I will save my existential crisis for after our podcast, but that is just amazing. That is incredible. And, you know, on the, on the, as you're talking about kind of the drive it takes to do science, and the, the gumption to do it. Um, you know, other scientists in the past, like Einstein and Carl Sagan, and even our own Percival Lowell, talked about things like imagination, where it's one thing to have data, it's another to make sense of it. Um, can you talk about that a little bit in your studies? Well, I, I, in terms of imagine, my, I've always imagined myself getting into Africa. Uh, and I, I imagined myself um, actually making some discoveries. Uh, I, I never imagined some of the events like meeting this French geologist who was so generous to invite me uh, to his this, the area where he was working, where he had spotted fossils, but he didn't know really what they, what they uh, meant because he was studying rocks and not fossils. Um, but I think that, you know, I think curiosity for me is, is a much stronger word hmm. uh, than imagination. Um, imagination is coupled for me with, uh, with uh, a personal commitment and drive and, and fascination with the subject. Uh, and for me, it was, it was curiosity because I was so curious about knowing, uh, about wondering whether or not we could actually find remains that would enlighten us more about how we became human. And um, so I think all of those things are um, important and work together synergetically, having having a passion, having an imagination of what might happen, having uh, a drive or a commitment and a curiosity. And uh, primates in general, when we look at uh, the order of mammals in which we belong, um, we certainly see that primates are very curious animals. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm certain that was true uh, for our early ancestors, just as it is for us today. If you could talk to your, your younger self, um, this like young scientist who's looking to make his mark in the field uh, with all the retrospect you have af- afforded to you now, what would you tell him? Well, I, I, would, I would tell them that uh, they should study as much geology. Mm, um, okay. I, I minored in, in geology as an undergraduate um, and as much biology mm-hmm. uh, as uh, as possible, you know, the field is 
broadened, especially with uh, recent origins of Homo sapiens and the demise of Neanderthals, the discovery of Denisovans, uh, of the hobbits, as they're called, uh, in mm-hmm. Southeast Asia. Genetics is playing a, a bigger role than ever, and biology is extremely important hmm. uh, for understanding evolution, obviously. Um, and um, what I, I probably would have taken more uh, paleontology, the study of really fossil animals in general, to try to get a grounding as an undergraduate as much as one can in biology and geology, paleontology, uh, anatomy, and then to uh, go to one of these schools where there's an act where there are active field programs where you can uh, get on expeditions to some of these remote areas and actually see what it's like in the field because we've had field schools over the years uh, where uh, to the Lucy site to Hadar and it's quite clear that you know, I would say, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's fairly high, 80, 90 percent. They don't want to live every day in 105 degrees and sleep in a tent <laughs> for three months and worry about malaria and bug bites and scorpions and snakes and discomfort. Uh, and uh, they've decided that yeah, they're interested. They're going to do lab work. Mm-hmm. But. There are some who say, this is it. When I went and landed in Africa in June 1970, I was 27 years old. And the first morning I walked out of my tent in southern Ethiopia, I said, this is where I want to be. That's amazing. I I could definitely see why, you know, you could have these illusions of grandeur and then get out there and, and the reality becomes a lot more difficult to manage than expected. But um, it's amazing that it was just immediately clicked for you. Well, that that's that you said something very important because um, we had a um, an anatomist. Uh, he's at Tel Aviv University, one of great great colleagues of mine, and he came. We he'd never been to the field, so we invited him to the field, and you know he, we was out there. He said, "I've been out here five weeks, and I, I haven't found anything." <laughs> and I said, you just keep looking, keep looking. And uh, he was the, the one ultimately who found the first fairly complete skull of Lucy's species. It's amazing. Thanks for uh, participating in the I Heart Pluto Festival and for joining us on this podcast and um, telling your amazing stories. Well, it's been uh, a a real pleasure for me, and uh, I hope to look forward to meeting you, Cody, when I'm uh, in Flagstaff. This podcast was brought to you by Lowell Observatory members and subscribers like you. 